This is WBEW LP Brattleboro 1077 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at www.bew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air Sundays at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and the guests and not the radio station. I'm Kelly and I teach third grade in Massachusetts and I'm also a member of the Spark Teacher Education Program. I'm Olivia. I teach in New Hampshire. I'm a sixth grade middle school teacher and I also am a graduate of the Spark Teacher Education Institute. So today we are discussing the proposed legislation across several several states that bans discussion of racism, sexism, and other, quote, divisive topics in schools. Idaho, Iowa, Louisiana, Missouri, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, and West Virginia have drafted bills that would ban the teaching of what they deem divisive or racist and sexist concepts. We will look into the we will look in particular at the proposed bill in New, in New Hampshire, uh, HB 544. The bill was passed by Republicans in the New Hampshire House in February. It was tabled and is currently attached to the state budget. We'll hear from a history teacher as well as a group of high school students doing work around consent education. So just briefly, the policy that is specifically in New Hampshire states um, that it prohibits public employee training or education in New Hampshire that teaches, quote, divisive concepts. And then it defines divisive concepts. So that includes um, concepts um, discussing race or sex. Um, for example, the concept that an individual, by virtue of his or her race or sex, is inherently racist, sexist, oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so this applies to schools and applies to any public um, uh, institution that re- receives public funds um, and the way that they train their employees. So, Olivia, you teach in New Hampshire. And hence, this is, this is a legislation that would affect your work and your teaching. And you were able to talk to some people. Do you want to tell us who, who you talked to this week about the legislation? Yeah, I talked with veteran social studies teacher Eric Bowman. Um, he teaches in New Hampshire. And um, I spoke with him about how this bill could potentially affect his teaching. Great. So let's, let's go to the interview. We're here with Eric Bowman. He's a high school teacher in New Hampshire, and we're going to talk about the New Hampshire Bill HB 544 about divisive topics in schools and any public institution. So, Eric, I was wondering if you could describe the legislation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll do my best um, to describe it as as I hear it. It seems as though there's an effort to... Um, make sure that we don't teach certain things in classes that might imply or outright state that the country we live in is racist or that certain systems that we live under are racist or that students in that classroom are racist. That seems to be what the intention is. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty broad description of what that might be. So what I've been saying and what I kind of said to you off the air is what I would like is for uh, the sponsors of the bill and the supporters of the bill to maybe explain a little more what they mean by it, because um, I can only go with, with what I've read and then also what I'm kind of inferring from it. Yeah. And I think it says the same thing for sexism as well, right? You can't say anything's any state entity is inherently sexist. Yep. And I was wondering, as a teacher, you've taught lots of different subjects, you know, civics and history. Like, how would you navigate teaching if this was implement if this law was passed? Yeah, it's 
it's tricky because like, for example, I teach economics and one of the units that we do in economics is, uh, which is state state mandated, by the way, um, is a comparison of a command economy to a free market economy. So we're talking and we do a, an activity uh, comparing Karl Marx and Adam Smith. In that class, it's part of the curriculum to teach Marxism um, in comparison to capitalism. Um, I don't feel like when I'm teaching that I'm indoctrinating students or I'm at risk of um, accusing them of being, you know, you know, bourgeoisie pigs or something like that by teaching what, what Marx said. Um, I feel like we can have an intelligent conversation about that and, and look at things um, on their merits or lack of merits. Um, so in an economics class, we teach that controversial issue. And, and, and frankly, I think, I do think that Marxism is one of the things that this, um, that this criticism of critical race theory across the country is, is bothered about. I've heard that mentioned in some of the other bills that, that they are Marxist in nature. Um, so I bring that up, not because I'm a Marxist and not that that matters actually, but that, um, uh, in other classes, we manage to talk about these so-called divisive issues or, um, uh, theories that are critical of our system or our way of doing things. And yet we don't fall victim to like, you know, trashing America or something like that. And uh, we've, we've seen clear that we can teach these things and not worry about it. Um, and that the state can test us on such things and not worry about it. So that's, that's one example that comes to mind of, of why this seems unusual to me. Another question I had was, um, I know for a while you were teaching a a women's studies course Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about, um, if, the people that wrote this bill or people that support it would think that that was inherently sexist and that that shouldn't be taught in schools. Yeah. So what, what we would see there is a somewhat unprecedented step by particularly the New Hampshire state government, um, which, which purports to be pretty hands-off. Um, and, and there's advantages to that. I've, I've enjoyed the fact that I don't have a lot of, um, uh, state mandated things in my curriculum or that um, there's a certain amount of local control in my school. I appreciate that. And I can get behind that. It seems really unprecedented to me that there would be a law passed that, that would, if you're going to enforce it, you're going to essentially say to a school, you can't offer that class anymore. And we're talking about a class women's studies that is in high demand. Um, that has been quite successful. That is using a co-teaching model. That is something that is, um, uh, co-teaching being advocated around the education circles as a very valuable thing. Um, it's interdisciplinary in nature, and that's another thing that's valued across educational circles. It would be a case where the state comes in and not only dictates curriculum, which I know states do, but they're now saying that you can't offer a certain class. And that is not how New Hampshire has done things in the past. And also, when you consider that women's studies is not some far out subject that isn't offered all over the place. We're not talking about some crazy, you know, studying the, you know, civilization of Mars kind of thing. This is a, a, a acknowledged scholarly topic that is taught all over the place. So being told that we can no longer do it is, um, uh, it's just breaking precedent pretty extremely. You kind of touched on it, how New Hampshire is all about local control um, with the local schools and that's one reason why Governor Sununu doesn't want this language in the state budget bill, because he thinks it's up to schools mm-hmm. to decide. Um, but I was going to ask, have you ever experienced anything like that in New Hampshire, teaching in New Hampshire for so long? Or do you think it's pretty different? I've I've thought about this um, because we do have state curriculum. We have had various degrees of state testing through the years. Um all of that has been there. I do understand that there needs to be some state control since there is even a small amount of state funding coming. Um, I understand that, but this is different to me. Um, this is, uh, this isn't state testing. This isn't a, a form of assessment. Um, this isn't a way of, of ensuring that schools are doing the jobs that they're supposed to do. Um, I, I fully understand that. I don't understand um, controlling what the curriculum will be or um, having some um, extreme fears that the way we teach it might be indoctrinating students or something like that. Um, that that's, that's highly unusual 
Um, I've been teaching for almost 25 years and I, I can't think of any other case like that. Yeah. It definitely seems like it's coming out of a place of fear of what might happen if, if these topics come up. Um, yeah. And it's, you're, it's not a form of assessment. I think that's a good point that when the state's involved, it seems to be about scores and data and assessment and it's not about the content normally. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and even to kind of illustrate the local control that we have, I have been on the district committee to write our social studies curriculum, um, for many years now, um, formulating curriculum that goes all the way down to the elementary school level. And we had a, a great deal of control in doing that, which was fantastic. Um, that I feel like that's the New Hampshire value. Um, and I appreciate being trusted to do that as a teacher that, you know, I'm the professional. I ought to know, um, what needs to be taught when it should be taught, what's age appropriate, what's a good way to assess it. Um, I think that's a great model. We are the professionals. We do know what we're doing. Um, uh, this, this kind of long reach to all of a sudden, um, step in and say, yeah, but not that. Um, it, it's just, like I said, it's breaking with precedent. It's pretty, a pretty extreme break. Do you think it's backlash to the protests this summer? Yeah. Just people reacting to just social movements in general? Okay. So I don't know. I can't get in the head of the person who wrote the bill or the sponsors or what have you, or the people who support it. Um, I can't get in their heads and I don't want to like make accusations that they're reactionaries or that they're trying to protect some white supremacist interest or something like that. Um, but I would say that the timing is peculiar um, and it, you can't help but but draw that conclusion if you're if you're a spectator watching like that. Of course, that's a, the a conclusion that someone's going to draw. Um, and if that's the case, if the sponsors of the bill don't intend that, which I'm leaving the option open that that's possible, um, that that maybe they do perceive a real actual problem. Um, I would, I, I hope they know that the optics aren't great. Um, that, you know, as soon as you see a group of people who feel like they're oppressed, um, speaking out, and then your reaction is to let's make sure that we don't teach that that group of people is oppressed. Um, I, I, I guess they shouldn't be surprised that people perceive it that way. The people who wrote, who wrote the bill claim a lot of topics are divisive and that, you know, they shouldn't be discussed. But um, how do you think talking about supremacy and systems of domination could bring people together? A lot of this comes from my philosophy of education. And it, it seems as though the people who sponsored the bill have a different philosophy of education. My philosophy of education is that learning is, is, is a, you learn from, from a place of vulnerability. Um, you don't tend to learn a whole heck of a lot when you already know what you're talking about or you're extremely confident that you know or like you, you have nothing you can show me. So to learn is to is is hard. It's hard because you have to put yourself in a position of vulnerability. Therefore, we're going to have to address things that might make you uncomfortable. Um, now, that doesn't mean like uncomfortable, like teaching sensitive subjects or teaching private things or whatever. What I mean is like you don't know how to use a bandsaw. I want you to give it a try, Olivia. Like, let's let's see how you do here. And I know it's going to be loud and scary and you're going to screw up at first, but that's okay. Um, well, it's not just with teaching skills like bandsaws. It's, it's teaching about how to look at the world and how to interpret that historical event or how to do math or whatever. Like, you're going to be in a position of vulnerability. So if 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 an educator doesn't see education that way and rather they see it as, I have a list of facts that you need to memorize and you just need to know. And at the end of this, I expect you to be proud of the, of the stuff you now know. I, I just don't see education that way. Um, I can't, I have to allow students to be vulnerable, but I have to make sure it's a safe environment so that that learning can take place. I would hope that my superiors would trust me to create that safe environment so that everyone feels safe. Everyone feels safe. Not just the person who agrees with me politically, but also the person who I secretly um, can't can't abide their views. You know, they, they should not know that. Um, everyone should feel safe. If they don't feel safe, learning is not going to happen because they can't be vulnerable. As far as the the teaching divisive issues and what have you, the reason I have a hard time with it is I, I can't I, like I can't reconcile it with my way of seeing education. It just can't make sense because so many things could be divisive. You know, the way a scientist interprets data can be divisive. Um, 
you know, I might have a way of looking at a math problem that's different from the way you look at math problems. Um, and that could be divisive, but that's where the real education takes place is when you have these little disagreements and then I can come around to seeing things the way you see it or not. Um, and we're all better for it. Yeah. I think, I think that, um, the divisive part, it's like divisive for who, um, Mm -hmm. it sort of seems to be like a, white middle-class man. I don't know who wrote the bill, but um, it seems like they don't want it. They're thinking of a particular group of people that might feel like certain things are divisive. Um, Like I always think about the tenets of white supremacy culture and one of them is right to comfort. And I think that a lot of people want to be comfortable and they don't want to think about these issues and they want to remain in that comforting space. And that's just not the world we live in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what a shame that is as a teacher um, or as a politician who passes this law. Um, what a shame that is when you think about it, because I, I just said, like, you got to create a classroom where students feel safe to wrestle with these things and to truly be themselves. But what I would be doing there is is putting my own comfort ahead of the students. Like, I would feel safe. I would feel comfortable. I would know that. Um, you know, my boss is not going to come down on me because I'm not being divisive. Um, but that's one of those privileges you're talking about. Like I've, I've, I've taken away their, um, ability to be vulnerable, um, because I've just decided that I'm not going to be vulnerable either. We're just going to make this a really comfortable conversation. And then it's easy for me to say, but they're the ones who may be, um, living with the questions or even worse, living with the oppression that we should be talking about. Do you have any thoughts on if Governor Sununu will veto the budget? I'll take him at his word. I mean, he said he would. I think by including it into the budget, that was a that's a pretty interesting move. It makes it more complicated. Um, I take him at his word that he would veto it. Um, Maybe there are political reasons why he's saying he would veto it, but I don't know. I'm going to take him at his word and and assume that he thinks it's not a great idea. Um, And you know, and maybe hope that he thinks that because I think it's clear that I don't think it's a good idea. Um, I think it's actually quite a destructive idea. Um, but, um, you know, I, I hope he thinks the same. Is there anything else you want to add about, about this topic? So I guess if I can get specific, I teach history. One of the things that I'm required to teach is historiography which is for those who might not know who are listening is like the study of how people interpret history. Um, that is included in my curriculum. I have to teach that. Now I also want to, um, I teach AP us history and on the AP exam that all of my students will take, uh, there's a pretty good chance that they will have questions about historiography, meaning how certain historians have looked at history through the years. Um, now I happen to think it's an important skill, and I agree with it, but also if I'm going to prepare my students for a high stakes national exam, I have to teach historiography. I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons that bills like this are being passed is because of the 1619 project, which was uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's uh, amazing contribution to history. And Nicole Hannah Jones has said all along that this project is historiography. This is a, a way of looking at history. Um, she said other things and I'm not going to put words in her mouth, but one of the things that she has said is that this is historiography. This is how we interpret history. So now uh, a state law might be telling me that I can't teach historiography, which could conceivably handcuff my students on a high stakes national exam, which we know will have historiography on it. And I don't know that that's been thought all the way through. Um, you know, I, some of the historical interpretations that I've had to teach, like um, the American Revolution was um, mainly an upper class revolt in order to protect their economic interests. That is a view that some historians have taken. Um, and it and it did appear on the AP exam. So one, shouldn't we know how historians have interpreted history through the years? And aren't we still living in a, you know, with people who are interpreting history? And two, if you want to just get kind of, you know, nuts and bolts about it, um, it could be on an exam someday and I, I can't teach it now. Um, this is what I mean about uh, uh, being like government overreach. Um, 
we've been allowed to teach things based on our professional judgment. And this seems to be an occasion where all of a sudden we aren't, and it could have drastic effects, not only on my students in the classroom, not only on society at large and, you know, people of color, but also if you want to just kind of be like kind of selfish and data-based about it, it could affect the test scores of my students on a national exam. By giving these like really kind of logical arguments like that, I hope I don't sound that um, I don't also care about the social justice that is at really at at the core of all this. I, I hope that that's a given and I don't want to like have to explain that I, I also would like, to, I, I try real hard to be an anti-racist educator and um, and all that. I'd like to kind of like use that as a kind of an assumption and kind of get more, use this to get more into the other considerations that maybe are being overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's hard because I think teachers' jobs are hard already. So I think that every teacher has to think about how it would make their job more difficult to have more control over because I f- it depends where you teach but um to worry about getting in trouble on top of just daily you know stuff that happens in school every day it's it's mm-hmm. hard to be in a school all day and work in a school all day but yeah it's like very I can't think of the word but it's yeah. they're what? just they're policing the curriculum it's a um it's a huge burden because I really do feel like a huge responsibility to the students who are in the room and also to the society at large that those students will either be a part of or be in charge of someday, which is why I would say looking at a bill like this, um, we've got to be way more careful than whatever way the political winds are flowing or um, or because, you know, someone's worried that they might be accused of being a racist or whatever. Um, like those really aren't good enough reasons to change what we're doing. And probably they would have really serious effects, not only on the kids in the classroom, which is really what my focus has to be on a day-to-day basis, like my kids in front of me, but also on the society at large, which clearly needs some serious change for there to be justice. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. This is Indigo Radio. Today, we are discussing the proposed legislation across several states that bans discussion of racism, sexism, and other, quote, divisive topics in schools. And you just heard the Eastley brothers fight the power. And we just heard the interview with Eric Bowman, high school teacher in New Hampshire, and I think he brought up some really good points about um, this proposed legislation it really goes against the pattern of local control for local school districts. So each school decides on their own what they teach and you know what's important to that district. And um, that it's kind of rare, um, at least in Eric's experience that the state um, has has really been involved in the curriculum that's being taught. It's kind of typical that they're involved in, in assessment and state testing and things like that, but not actually the curriculum being taught. Um, and I think it was a good point that he brought up the 1619 project, the New York Times project that looks into the history of, of enslavement in the United States and how that kind of opposition from the Trump, the Trump administration and other other politicians um, could sort of be where this bill, one of the reasons this, so many states are proposing these bills. Yeah, and one thing I want to point out is that this type of legislation that specifically targets the content of the curriculum does predate Trump. And there is precedent for it. I don't know about New Hampshire, but one thing I'm thinking about is the Arizona Ethnic Studies Program that was banned in 2010. The Arizona Ethnic Studies Program specifically looks at history from framing it from the perspective of um, Chicano studies and indigenous studies in, um, in that area. And actually just last year in 2020, a judge upheld the ban and um, specifically citing, saying that any class that promotes ethnic solidarity was not permitted and was they considered they called it racist so that is content that was specifically banned i'm also thinking um currently about the fight in california to for an for a california ethnic studies program and the ethnic studies program was stopped due to um i'm not sure if it's only this content but certainly due to content including arab american studies content about Palestine, even content that just includes Palestinian poets and songwriters was considered anti-Semitic and they said there wasn't enough um, Jewish voices in the in the ethnic studies program, which is actually not true. There were certainly Jewish studies included in the ethnic studies um, program as well, but the opposition was to including studies about um, Arab Americans in the ethnic studies program. And so the uh, Arizona law was 2010 and the in California, it's, the fight has just been going on in the past couple of years. But I would imagine that the fight to censor teachers and censor things in school that challenge power and challenge hierarchies have predate 2010. Uh, let's go to our second interview with some high school students in New Hampshire. Reagan and Ayla from the student organization End Sexual Violence on Campus. End Sexual Violence on Campus is a student-founded and student-led initiative aimed at uprooting sexual violence in early education before individuals reach college age. The seven-student group began organizing in the fall of 2019 and is now comprised of over 20 student activists and volunteers. The group's goals include implementing the group-created research-based consent curriculum at Conval High School and surrounding schools advocating for improved climate and responses to student disclosures in school, highlighting non-punitive options for survivors seeking justice and reaching every corner of New Hampshire with their mutual aid project aimed at distributing free and anonymous menstrual and sexual health care products. Reagan is a senior in high school who has been with SVOC since the start. She's one of two members of the group who completed extensive qualitative research for the group's consent curriculum and is most interested in the intersections of her work with other groups in the area, such as the Reproductive Freedom Fund, New Hampshire Mutual Aid, and Relief Fund. 
Ayla is a senior at Conval High School in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Ayla began her work with SFOC in the very beginning when Reagan first brought the idea to her. Fast forward, Ayla is now working on numerizing a recent consent survey that was released to the public last year. She hopes to share the results with the community and school district and faculty to raise awareness of the issues surrounding sexual violence. She loves recording podcasts and planning fundraisers and events for the group to hold. So thanks for being here. Can you talk about the work that you've been doing in your school? Yeah, so I guess I could start out with this one a little bit. Um, I know it was mentioned in the introduction, but one of the things that we've worked on throughout the, um, this past year directly with Conval um, is an independent study where um, two of our members, I am one of them, um, we've been working on developing a comprehensive consent curriculum for implementation. So we spend a lot, um, a, quite a few months doing research and we finally moved towards um, production and we've built the curriculum, we've built a teacher guide, um, other resources. And then um, another thing we do directly in schools is we try to push free sexual and menstrual health, um, excuse me, healthcare products into the hands of our students. Um, and obviously a lot of our student volunteer base is from Conville. So that is a lot of our school work. Can you talk about what education around racism and sexism means to you? So a lot, a lot of what we discussed when, when writing the curriculum is this concept of adult learning theory, um, which was something that was introduced to us by, in one of our interviews, um, which is basically the idea that like any high school age student is arriving at, the discuss, at discussions of race and sex with some type of preconceived notion of what those things are and what the conversation will look like and um, any type of political opinion they may have at it. So um, for them to be able to first unlearn and relearn is something um, that could be beneficial to them. Uh, we have to approach the conversations with the idea that, you know, it's non-judgmental and that, the, like, you think this way for a reason. So offering them the tools to be able to understand their, their current understanding of the topics. So, like, something that I always use as an example when I'm explaining why we did this is, like, if you were approaching a history class and your history teacher said, like, everything you've learned up to this point has been, you know, framed in a white supremacist framework, then the students would be equipped to be like, why is it that way? You know, challenge my own beliefs and, and you know, be able to work from there. So this legislation... Um... HB 544, which is now like not really on the table, but it's still in the state budget that says that you wouldn't be allowed to talk about uh, sexism or racism in schools in any state, um, any state entity. Um, so if this if something like this passed, um, how would it affect the work that you're doing in schools? Essentially, if that bill is passed, so sexual sexual assault and harassment are kind of put under, um, like, in laws, I guess, they're considered discrimination. Under Title IX, sexual assault and sexual harassment fall under sex-based discrimination in schools. And if uh, kids were to be taught in health classes or health and wellness classes um, about sexual assault or, like, healthy relationships or consent or anything, then teachers wouldn't really be allowed to discuss how women are affected disproportionately to men because that would be considered talking about some form of sex-based discrimination or sexism. And so that's then, you know, that's obviously going to put the issue in a, a whole different light and it's not really going to expose it to be as serious as it is because they're not really going to be able to go in depth about how big of a problem a sexual assault is for women and they're not really going to be able to, to teach it as it needs to be taught. Uh, consent or just teaching about the history of the issue itself either. And um, what will happen there is kind of what happens already sometimes is that students aren't going to be able to take it as seriously. You know, like in health classes, there are um, horror stories of, you know, like boys making jokes or students making jokes just in general. Um, and a lot of that would just be a lot of sweeping issues under the rug in a situation where those issues really need to be brought to light and people really need to learn how sexual assault does disproportionately affect women. And that, that would take away the opportunity to discuss that. And also just to add to that, like last point that you said, um, since this bill is aimed at both race and sex, we couldn't talk about how this 
sexual violence disproportionately affects women of color as well, which is like another huge thing that um, we just fail to address in a lot of education. So like this already needs reform and, um, you know, this bill could only reverse progress that's, that's in dire need. Right. And that would just, you know, it would take away completely from discussing, discussing the issue. Like if you can't talk about like how it disproportionately affects certain groups of people, then it's not, it's, you know, you're never going to be able to understand it. for what it really is, I guess. Yeah. And to counter that idea that talking about these issues could be divisive, um, how do you think talking about supremacy and systems of dominations could bring people together? I think that I personally experienced this like a lot with with my parents, actually. Um, I think that a lot of people in, you know, older generations, they didn't really grow up with social media, whereas we do. And Um, our generation grows up with, you know, video evidence of things like in the George Floyd case and cancel culture where people are being called out and they're being like, our generation is demanding responsibility and demanding consequences for actions. And, you know, like just calling people out on their crap, I guess, (laughs) for like, use a better word. Um, and I think that, um, when I, at least when I talk with my parents, like they're not really used to that and they're hesitant about it. And like their first, their first idea is to try and like sweep it under the rug and to not acknowledge that the problem is what it is because they just like, I feel like sometimes don't always think about it that way, I suppose. But I think that when we do talk about these things and like when I see our generation talking about these things or really anybody talking about them and really just finding the roots of the problem and, and doing the work to try and reverse the problem. That's when you start to see people demanding responsibility and demanding a solution, because the more that you can understand a problem for what it is, and the more that you don't shy away from it, and you don't try to sweep it under the rug, then like the more motivation you're going to have to fix the problem. You know, you're going to understand it more. You're going to understand how it disproportionately affects certain groups of people. And it's going to um, propose opportunities for change the more you talk about it, the more it's going to motivate that. I think the only thing that I would add is just like kind of what you had mentioned in the start where it's a, where it's like a lot of previous generations and our current, a lot of our current generation seems to think about all of these problems with such like an individualistic framework where it's like, these are the public, um, the struggles I've faced and the way that I think of things. Um, and like, you know, I've had hard days, I've had hard nights. Um, and you sure have, nobody's trying to strip you of that, but like understanding, you know, even though it may cost you a hard day where you have to acknowledge your privilege, being able to understand that um, post-acknowledgement will allow you to like open, open up your mind to the fact that like you are part, your personal individuality is part of it, part of like such a bigger problem, um, which I think is like, you know, more unifying than not. Yeah. So what would you say to the proponents of this legislation? Like what would be your response? The first thing I'd say is kind of what I just said a couple seconds ago. Like it is true that our identities are not a choice, nor do they define us as human beings. Like that is kind of the message point blank. Um, What is a choice, however, is acknowledging how aspects of your identity fit into the larger context of the world. So again, like the struggles you face, but also what struggles have you never known and who has known them? Why? Like that why piece is all of education. That's like the whole, all of what we talk about. Um, and again, nobody's asking you to like scrap your identity or your character or the pride, um, but we're just begging you to express some type of care um, for, for others and, and, and empathize. Em- em- emphasizing empathy in the approach um, can like kind of help everybody contextualize these issues. Um, and yeah, like I said, that's just what you do in all of education. So the fact that, you know, we're narrowing it down to race and sex is, is kind of, you know, indicative of the, the continued grasp for power um, over those marginalized communities. I agree. And I think that as we've touched on a little bit before and the other answers that we've given that, this, this bill just reminds me of just trying to kind of sweep the problems under the rug, like sexism and racism. They're, they're big problems in our society and, and just not talking about them is not, I mean, I don't, I honestly don't think that that's going to do much. If, if our, if students in the country can't learn in school, then where are they going to learn? You know, like if they can't understand these issues for what they are and why they exist in school with people 
who are, you know, licensed to teach them these things, the, the, where are they going to learn them? And like, what messages are they going to be getting? And it's just, um, I don't think that this is the type of solution that is, that's going to be a real solution. I guess it's, it's not the right way to go about it. Is there anything else that you, either of you wants to add to this conversation? I think it's like obviously very relevant to the, to the work that we do um, and like the recent work that we've done in producing this curriculum. Um, but, you know, otherwise I just beg people to, to, to take a moment to kind of think about what the way that they think <laughs> that was so poorly worded, but basically try and understand their belief system and where it comes from and why it may be, you know, a bandaid over a bullet hole. That's all that I would add. Okay. Thank you so much for talking with me today. So that was a really um, great discussion you had with those students um, about the work that they're doing in schools. And it just makes me think about like whether, because they say, you know, discussing bringing these things is divide, bringing these issues is divisive. But I, I'm curious about what they would say, whether students are allowed to have opinions about racism and sexism these opinions that the state is declaring divisive and are they allowed to explore and discuss their thoughts yeah and uh, recently the uh, teacher and writer jesse hagopian um, in seattle he was on cbs news uh, to discuss some of these bills proposed in several states and he said Quote, we also want to teach about the long history of resistance to that oppression and how people have organized across race, across class, across gender to build a better society and to build social, build social movements. I think that, you know, in places like Arkansas, where they went as far as banning solidarity in their bill, right? They proposed banning the teaching of solidarity. And I think that's exactly what we want to build more of in our society. Yeah, so interesting because they're saying that these things are divisive and then they're banning teaching the word solidarity. And I think really it gets to kind of the crucial issue here, which is that the legislation really has nothing to do with divisiveness, whether or not students are divided. And I think we can look at history and say that some people benefit very much from students being divided and actually there's a great great um quote from this um opinion article that i actually found on msnbc and it's about um the letter that mitch mcconnell wrote 
um, essentially to object to teachers using resources from um, the 1619 project. He says essentially that they're divisive and that, and he objects to the 1619 project, including um, content about the history of slavery in North America. So this article makes the point. But who is he kidding? This is not about the 1619 project. It's about furthering the right-wing mythology recently regurgitated by former Senator Rick Santorum that white Europeans created America without the help of anyone and without oppressing anyone. Santorum made the point that point as he told a crowd of young conservatives, we came here and created a blank slate, adding, we birthed a nation from nothing. So I'm thinking about the curriculum we have in schools that is very much about, perpetuates the idea that white Europeans created America without the help of anyone and without oppressing anyone. And I'm curious, Olivia, as, as both a social studies and English teacher, if you can think of curriculum and content and books and standards that um, have that idea literally written into the foundation of what they are and how they're taught. Yeah, I think every year on um, Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly known as Columbus Day, I always have this conversation with students about, you know, who, who lived here first and how can how can a country be discovered if there's already people live indigenous people living here? And I think that that is um, a, a conversation I always have every year with students that um, I think can sometimes go against what they learned in elementary school or uh, what ideas they had about the founding of this country that made it sound like um, it was discovered and that everything that happened was good and it kind of removes uh, any violence or genocide. Um, sometimes kids are aware of it and sometimes they really are not. It, it depends. I think things are changing and more students tend to know that Christopher Columbus didn't really discover America. Yeah, I was thinking about some of the like social studies standards and um they are certainly now um, written in a little bit more of a way to say that the relationship between like the indigenous people here and the colonizers was not all rosy. But even I'm thinking about like the words they use to describe in the standards to describe the history describes colonizers as pioneers or settlers, um, which paints them in a certain light, whereas saying that they're colonizers is a different choice, is a different word, and they're all words and they all have social consequences. But I would say very much still that what's taught taught in history is about like thinking about indigenous people is that they helped the white settlers and that the heroes are the ones who helped the white settlers. And I think my point in saying that is that what is taught in school has a perspective and benefits certain people. And does it doesn't benefit other people and looks at certain things and doesn't look at certain things. So all of these things, all of these ideas that they don't want us to talk about are already written into the curriculum. And the issue here for me is not that they don't want students to be divided. It's that they don't want questioning and critical thinking happening in schools. Yeah. And when I was a social studies teacher, the... Um at a high school, the school didn't allow any like clubs, student clubs or extracurriculars that could be considered political because they wanted to avoid any type of, of controversy. Um, and I know like lots of, lots of high schools have clubs like young Republicans, young Democrats, things like that. And my school wasn't allowed to have them because they were just afraid of any type of backlash. The school I used to work at, not my school. I'm thinking about the larger context too, and maybe now we can get into the the context that these bills are being put put forward in. Um, and obviously, part of the context is the Black Lives Matter uprisings this summer, 
Um, but those Black Lives Matter uprisings are also attached to an increase in strength in social movements and an increase in people being more conscious and awake of the inequalities in our society and, um, and learning about history. And so there are a lot of other laws. We listed earlier on in the show the states, that there's eight states that have proposed laws that ban, that censor teachers. But then it's also coming in the context of other laws that are backlash to the gains that social movements have made. Uh, One of these laws in Florida uh, was if you're with 25 or more people or you're obstructing traffic, it becomes a felony and an aggravated riot punishable by 15 years in jail. There's five years in jail if you deface a monument. If you tag a Confederate monument, it's a super serious charge under the Florida bill. Yeah, actually, and it's so funny, I was reading an article that made the point of they're so concerned with protecting, quote, history, and that's what the Confederate monuments are, are history, and if we take them down, we're we're erasing history, but they absolutely do not want to teach about the history, the context that these um, Confederate monuments existed in and what these Confederate generals stood for. Um, This is another law, it's from Oklahoma, this kind of blows my mind. I think I still have trouble believing that it is written into law. It is, um, it was just signed by the Republican governor, Kent, Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma, and it's an anti-protest bill that protects drivers who kill or injure protesters by running into them with their cars from both civil and criminal prosecution. That one is pretty mind-blowing and very scary. And I think there was also some similar laws after the Dakota Access Pipeline protest that criminalized the type of nonviolent civil disobedience at the heart of the Standing Rock resistance. Um, And it's not only Republicans pushing these laws, it was also Democratic Kansas Governor Laura Kelly recently signed a bill banning trespassing near pipelines and other quote, critical infrastructure facilities, unquote. Yeah, and then just kind of a, um, I think we've all heard about the most recent voter suppression laws, Georgia being the most glaring example of the massive voter suppression laws that were just passed there, Um, but many other states passing laws that curtail mail-in voting, curtail absentee voting, close polling places, and impose voter ID laws. I mean, the Georgia one criminalizes um, giving food or water to people who are waiting in line to vote. Um, So I think that these laws, for me, raise the the question that you asked Eric, which is, do you think that this legislation is backlash? to the social movements that have been building since last year, but also since Standing Rock, since the Black Lives Matter um, movement has been building um, in 2014, 2015. I'm curious what you think about that, Olivia. I think it's absolutely backlash to these movements. And so I think that's why we're seeing this things like censorship and these anti-protest laws, because people are out in the streets and um, teachers are talking about systemic racism. And I think that this happens when there's progress in movements. Usually there's always a backlash. And I think that um, many, many people oppose, oppose these laws. And in New Hampshire, I think it's pretty unpopular. And it was only uh, signed by Republicans and supported by Republicans which the New Hampshire House is currently dominated by Republicans that have the majority. Um, I think that, yeah, we wouldn't be seeing this bill if what happened over the summer didn't happen. Yeah, and I think that it's actually also really helpful to ground it in the origin of the language of a lot of these bills. Because 
these bills are not popping up um, independently of one another. The language of these bills is being written by right-wing think tanks, and it is being recycled and repeated in order to deal with um, the challenge to power and systems of domination that these movements propose. This is just one example that the Kansas bill that criminalizes um, trespassing near pipe was introduced at the request of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association. And so a lot of these bills are introduced in the collaboration between senators and uh, corporate executives, corporate interests, corporate representation that write write bills together and verbatim will take what they've written together outside of their time in the legislature, bring them to the legislature, and push them through to pass. So kind of regardless of the the certainly differing situations in different um, state legislatures and different states, they are arising from certain powerful groups of people. And I think it's really important to look at these censorship bills and the bills that criminalize protest in that context of their origins. So that does it for our show today. This has been Indigo Radio with Kelly and Olivia. Um, on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Check us out on Facebook at Indigo Radio to listen to our shows and find links and photos. Um, our, our archive of shows is also on SoundCloud, under Indigo Radio, and on iTunes. And we will go out with Pete Seeger's What Did You Learn in School Today? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. That's what the teacher said to me. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometime. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men, and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. Oh, yeah, I'm going-